Become a disruptor in the emerging fintech space through NYU Stern's new Master of Science in Fintech program. This one-year part-time program is designed with full-time working professionals in mind. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Even though our name is Breaking Banks, we don't really cover breaking news as a weekly show. We're recording this in real time on Friday, March 10th, just after 9 a.m., right after the FDIC issued a press release announcing that Silicon Valley Bank had been closed by the state regulators in California and that they have appointed the FDIC as receiver to oversee the liquidation of the bank. Just two days ago, the big news was the shutdown of Silvergate Bank, also in California, a specialist in serving various corners of crypto-related businesses. Who knows what the big story will be by the time you're hearing this, but I could hardly have two better guests to help us make sense of this perilous new phase of the industry. Kia Hazlitt, Managing Editor at Bank Director, joins me along with John Maxfield, who's the former Editor-in-Chief at Bank Director, currently a Senior Banking Analyst for Motley Fool and Principal at Maxfield on Banks, where he's written extensively on the history of banking and bank failures. Kia, maybe maybe just start off like what actually happened uh, over the last twenty four hours here at Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, where to start? Silicon Valley um, has faced um, some operating pressure based on who their customer base is um, and the problem their customers are having. But really, what kind of set this off is that um, earlier this week they announced a balance sheet restructuring ahead of their quarterly earnings announcement. The balance sheet restructuring included uh, selling ninety five percent of their available for sale securities at a one point eight billion dollar loss, as well as um, a large a two billion dollar capital raise that they had um, some commitments for. Uh, these two actions taken together did not signal confidence or strength in Silicon Valley, but um, they are very um, big decisions that banks have to make when they realize their balance sheet is breaking under the current operating conditions. Obviously, it seems that um, they were not able to buy themselves enough time to change, um, you know, to you know, deposits left the banking the bank faster than they could restructure the balance sheet. The, the shares sold off. It does seem like some venture capitalists. Uh, recommended to their clients that or companies that they withdraw. And we just had a good old-fashioned deposit run. And um, the FDIC um, and the DFI of California have decided to step in to mm-hmm. kind of stop um, stop the run and finally buy this bank the time um, now to unwind. Yeah. Uh, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank first announced the capital changes, I noted you, uh, among others, commented that, look, um, yeah, I don't know all the details here, but this seems like responsible, prudent moves. And, um, you know, maybe they're just the first and the bravest to, you know, go out and do it. But it, this, uh, probably 
has some implications on lots of other banks and and not because of anything to do with technology or crypto, uh, but just uh, years of zero interest rate policy and how people have been chasing yields with, um, you know, duration risk in their portfolios. Yeah, I um, I mean, what I said on Tuesday almost doesn't matter anymore, but <laughs> or Wednesday. Um, but I don't think, you know, Silicon Valley, um, they were trying to get rid of $20 billion, $21 billion in AFS securities that was only going to pay them 180 basis points for the next 40 months. That is not enough money, and that mm-hmm. is way too long of a time. Um, and so to do that, they were going to have to sell them, you know, as rates rise, bond yields fall. And so they were going to have to take this giant loss all at once. Now, um, in hindsight, that it was too late. That um, that this sale might have been a good move. It was just um, way too close to the end of their story. But many banks are carrying these very large, unrealized gains, and um, they are in a position currently where they don't have to tap that securities portfolio to raise money because they have adequate liquidity. The reason why. Silicon Valley had to do it is because they had um, pressure, you know, they had these deposit outflows and they needed to raise funds. Um, and so this interest rate risk management and liquidity coupled with liquidity management is a situation that a lot of banks are in because they have reached for duration for the last three years in this low interest rate environment. And, you know, for a while, a low loan growth environment, many banks decided to lock up their excess deposits in loans that are not paying very, or sorry, in bonds that are not paying very much today and they have very little incentive to sell them even though you know they might have rising need for cash john you are a longtime follower and watcher of uh banks and interest rates and balance sheets i mean what do you in the big picture what's this look like in terms of uh, a trend of how we got to where we are and well, where do you think this goes from here so one of the things that you will notice if you study like the whole story of banking and the history of banking, and you go through the data, um, you will notice that the principal thing that drives changes, that drives the direction of banking, that drives trends in banking is an abundance of liquidity. And when I say an abundance of liquidity, like you can think about that on a system-wide level. And so on a system-wide level, we've really gone through three or four different eras in banking, if you really to use a correct periodization of the industry. And all of those eras were dictated by huge insurges or out, outflows of liquidity. I call them novel liquidity flows. So this is not money sloshing around within the system. There's money coming into or out of the system from externally. And that's the story of banking. That's, that's the way to understand the story of banking. Well, you can look at that on an institutional level as well. And let me give you an example. When Andrew Jackson got rid of the, vetoed the recharter of the Second Bank of the United States, um, which would have been rechartered in 1836, he, what he did is he took the money that was in that bank and he distributed it to the state banks. They called them pet banks. And they put all this money into them in the form of deposits. Well, almost all of those banks, either within a couple of years, failed or came really, really close to failure because they had, they're sitting on all that liquidity. And so you think about banking, you think like, well, isn't that great to have all those deposits? Well, the reality is that there is there can be too much of a good thing because when you have all these deposits sitting on your balance sheet, you got to do something with them. And typically that forces you to 
reduce your, you know, your, your, your credit metrics and to widen up who you're going to loan money to, to, to ease up on the policies. Um, well, even, so- even a step more basic than that, um, you know, if you're not in or around the banking industry, you don't realize that, you know, the deposits that you own, which are your asset, those are liabilities for a bank. So having yeah, the, a lot of deposits, relationship right, is, is, is a lot of liabilities. So go ahead, John. And so the the overarching, like we can learn, look, we don't know a lot right now, okay? Like we all have to, things are going to change in an hour, things are going to change in two hours, but we can step back and make some general, you know, kind of observations. And one of those general observations is that abundance in banking begets failure. It's very unusual. Abundance, in, the main constraint in any other industry, any other business is scarcity. Scarcity demand, scarcity supply, scarcity of labor. In banking, it's abundance. Abundance is a primary constraint in banking. And so we have this situation here where yet over the past, since the, 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 the pandemics began, you had, I think they had an increase in deposits of like something like $100 billion. It was a huge amount of increase in deposits. And they took all those and put them in long dated, long dated bonds. Now we can, you can, you know, Monday, Monday quarterback that all day, every day, but these are sophisticated people. That was an incredibly good bank. Um, but it was it was caused by this notion of abundance. So yeah, it, that. like, that's not a bad decision that um, that they made with right, right, like relative to the other options they had in 2020, 2021, right? Well, now sure. now we I'm can say, sure. <laughs> but at the no, time no, that I, was reasonable. It felt reasonable. That's debatable because um, you could look at other banks. You look at what Renee Jones did at M T. He he was really good and really prudent about how he managed, but he didn't have that hundred billion dollars inflow. Yeah. But the, the the bigger issue here is not all this other stuff. The bigger issue is that only 5% of that bank's deposits are insured. That's it. 5%, your typical bank in that in that size group, 60% or 55, 56% of their deposits are insured. You have 5% insured here. So that means that they're sitting on 100 and, I don't know, $70 billion in uninsured deposits. And so they're going to lock those things up. Um, now they're going to release a little bit next week, but like all those VC companies, I mean, you're talking like, <laughs> the VC companies in America aren't going to have access to the funds to pay payroll potentially on Monday. Um, so it's an issue. It's an issue. I mean, there's not a fundamental credit quality problem with the bank. Uh, no. Could be. That, could, that, that we know of. Well, think about this, though. Who are their customers? Who are their depositors? Oh, their li- depositors are their li- customers, yeah. There are their, are their customers. loan customers. So we yeah. have this. We don't know. This is an unusual situation. Um, it I could mean, create credit problems for them. I feel like the FDIC can work out, hey, you have a loan, but you also have a lot of deposits. Well, I, you know, given the how we've exercised forbearance in the banking industry in the last three years and the fact that TDRs don't exist anymore, I, I, I feel, hopefully the FDIC can work out the no, both sides no. of the columns. You don't think you're, so? You're, no, you're, you're, your faith is misplaced. <laughs> if Why? You're like, okay, so Why is your faith now, mis- but... <laughs> misplaced, John? Your faith is misplaced. You go back to, there have been nine major banking crises in the United States. 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, well, the Civil War, 1873, 1893, 19, uh, the, ni- the Great Depression, the 1980s, which was a, a trio of crises, and then the financial crisis. Through eight of those crises, what you'll see is you'll see a double bump of the spikes in bank failures. Double bump, double bump, double bump, double bump, all the way through to the financial crisis. Every single crisis, there's a double bump of failures. It's like, like, what is the double bump? Like, well, what the double bump is, it's 
the, the initial response by the industry, the failure because of the, the deleveraging. But the, the second bump is caused by the regulatory response. The only one that didn't have this shape was the financial crisis. To say, well, why did the financial crisis not have that shape? Well, because the Fed was run by a guy who was like an expert on the Great Depression. So he just said, let's just throw everything at this problem that we have. And we'll even throw more at it that we don't, we, these are tools we don't, we'll just make up some new tools and throw those tools at it too. And so it's like, I have very, very, I, I'm not again, I'm not anti-regulator, regulator, but the, the, the facts over the, the past you know, 200 years of banking would give no one any reason to be like optimistic about how they would handle this. Well, certainly the blame game is already starting, uh, right? The banks are blaming the regulators and the the Fed and fiscal policy and monetary policy. There's a blame game starting blaming the VCs and and particularly around, you know, advising companies to, to pull out when there was concentration here. So we do wonder, you know, is there concentration risk uh, that we haven't thought about or talked about here before? But before we get into that, let me back up. The reason I made the comment I did, John, is I where I was heading is from where I'm sitting right now, this appears to be acute, but not necessarily chronic in the case of Silicon Valley Bank. And I assume uh, someone will swoop in once the dust settles. And there are many viable banking operations under that label today that'll be under somebody else's logo soon. That That's my assumption. Do you buy that? 100%. Yeah, yes. There's some, that is one of the preeminent franchise, banking franchises in the United States. I mean, the, the, again, this is all Monday morning quarterbacking. It's so easy for us to like look back on and say like this is a mistake made, and like and we would have made I maybe maybe worse mistakes. But when they came out and they said, "Look, we're gonna we're not gonna sell any of our securities," and a couple of weeks later they said, "No, not only are we gonna sell some, we're gonna sell twenty one point eight billion dollars worth of the securities, take a one point eight billion dollar loss, our biggest loss in, on record." But then we're gonna do this at the same time that we're raising two billion dollars in capital. It, it like. Because you, as soon as that capital raise failed, which was this morning, I mean, I talked to people who were dealing with Goldman Sachs on that capital raise last night. I mean, like Goldman Sachs is saying, "Will what price are you going to give us?" I mean, they were basically just begging people to be like, "We'll take anything." Um, and so, yeah, like the the, the pre- prevalent feeling as recently as last night was, oh, "This doesn't look so great," but they're raising capital and they're good for it, and there's going to be plenty of people that are going to jump in with capital and. You know what? Twelve yeah. hours later, we now officially have a first bank failure of twenty twenty three. And but when you need capital, that's when you can. That's when you can't get it. You know, you know that. I mean, you were at you were at U.S. Bank. What years were you at U.S. Bank, JP? Uh, ninety two through twenty twelve. Okay, so you were at the. So just so the listeners understand, like the significance significance of that, JP was at the bank that emerged from the financial crisis with the highest credit rating in the entire banking industry, even higher than J.P. Morgan Chase. Remarkable, yes. remarkable bank, remarkable story how that was managed through that crisis by Richard Davis. Um, yes. Near yeah, so AAA a rating. Experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, that leads us to a whole other conversation around there was a true flight to quality um, at that time, and U.S. Bank and a handful of others um, really benefited well for that. And like many other phrases around this, and I suppose other industries, 
they get misused. And so I, I've heard people in the last five, 10 years talk about flight to quality, meaning, hey, we're a good bank, so people want to bank with us. And that's not really what that means. And I think we're going to find out again what it really means as uh, people are looking to, you know, here's here's another phrase we haven't heard in a really long time, fortress balance sheet. But I think we're going to hear it a lot coming really soon. But JP, uh, if you were to look at if you were to look at Silicon Valley's balance sheet, you'd be like, that's a fortress balance sheet. You know what I mean? Yeah, 47% loan to deposits. <laughs> like I mean, I I think a lot of people wanted to bank their that type of client in that economy, in that geography. You know, they had a lot of things going from low cost deposits, really big balances. Um, it will be, you know. It'll be interesting to see how, like, what percentage of the uninsured depositors get their funds back through the asset sale. Um, because, you know, I, it is interesting to see these two, you know, two, now two bank failures or two closures tied to liquidity and, and not assets. It, it is, um, it's kind of interesting. I know it's probably happened throughout uh, the history of banking, but we didn't see that very much during the great financial crisis. So it is. Um, and then we also didn't see the, just the role that interest rates are playing um, and wrecking havoc on, on these, you know, you think that banks are higher interest rates are good for banks, but it, it, at least in these two banks, it was devastating. Well, and especially if your balance sheet isn't asset sensitive. Or you realize your balance sheet <laughs> asset sensitive. In, what had in, happened in three was three or four quarters, yeah. right? The the rate of increase has just been unreal, and in, they went underwater so fast. If you're looking at the FDIC's quarterly banking profile, you get the slight margin, and then billions of unrealized losses. Well, I I, I talk to bankers every day, and we had been hearing pretty loud, and Jason just wrote about this in our blog. Um, when he was at AOBA, right, the bank director event, that, that, that he was joking, you know, many years, <laughs> long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Oh, no, that was just a few weeks ago. Uh, there really wasn't a lot of discussion around uh, liquidity or needing deposits. In fact, it was the other way around, right? We have lots of um, cash and liquidity, and we need to increase our loans, right, to, to make up on that. Um well, John, you started on this, but let's take us back a little bit. You've done a tremendous amount of research on what do bank failures look like? What are the causes uh, of them? And, um, you know, what does this look like where we are today? And what, what can we expect broad-based? Again, we're not projecting on any individual institution, but, um, you know, as, as the saying goes, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. Indeed, it does. Um, so... We only have one historical precedent for what's going on right now, and that is the early 1980s. Um, and so, so you mean the of, SNL crisis and related so spillovers? 19, yeah. In 1973, okay. in 1973, you have the Yom Kippur War. The, in response to that, the, Air, the OPEC puts an oil embargo on the United States. That causes oil prices to jack up. That causes inflation to jack up. That causes Carter bring uh, Volcker into the Federal Reserve. Uh, Carter, Volcker then jacks up interest rates that turns the, the, the yield curves upside down, which is basically what we're dealing with right now, because he jacks up the Fed funds rate to 18% at, at its max in 19, I think its max was in 80. Sounds um, about right. And this is when savings and loans were, they were, the, the only thing they could hold on their balance sheet was 30, basically 30 year fixed rate mortgages. So they were yielding 8% in their assets, paying 18% on their deposits, get this huge, huge mismatch. Okay. I'm not real so good were, at math, but that's probably not a good business model. 
Yeah, he can burn through a lot of capital, okay, <laughs> real quick in that, in that situation. And so, but what's interesting about that period is that there were very, very few failures as a consequence of mismatch. And now we don't know if that was because a mismatch can only last, it just in, in nature will only last for a very short period of time. And we don't know that because we've only seen it once before. So it, it could be totally different. We, we just have no sense for that. But we didn't see very many mismatch failures back then. But the ones we did see were, I'll give you two of them. We uh, first, uh, first Pinsy is what they called it. First Pennsylvania Bank. Remember that one? By run by a guy named uh, John. Uh, oh man, what was that guy's name? He was a real personality. Um, I can't remember his name, but what I don't remember they, him, but I know what you're talking about. So in the 1960s, as the interest rates were were climbing, at the late 1960s, First Pinsy. So this like makes the, the main bank in Pennsylvania at the time. And it was like a darling. Everybody was like, oh my God, they're, they're so amazing. They're growing so fast. They're doing all these innovative things. And so it bet that interest rates weren't going to, they weren't going to continue climbing. And they've made this bet like 68 and 69, right? Well, I mean, 70, in the 70s, interest rates just shot way up. And so I think they only had a 22% or something like that of their, portfolio, of their asset portfolio in long-term government bonds, but that was enough to kill them. Um, so that, that took them down in a kind of similar situation to this one. Although like Silicon Valley Bank is like legions further along in terms of the quantity of, of securities on their portfolio. And then there was a similar one at this, around the same time, the Bank of the Commonwealth that failed. They did the same thing that First Penzi did, but it did it with munis. And so it failed for the same reason. But so, so we know that. So you know, if you just base it off that one experience, you'd say there's probably not going to be a lot of mismatch failures. But we don't know. But based on that, the one precedent we have, probably not going to be a lot of mismatch. The bigger issue is that you have a situation where these banks lose a bunch of money. They're sitting on these losses in their securities portfolios, and they want to make up for those losses doing other stuff. So they chase for yield in other areas. So that's what we had in, 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 the, in the savings, in the SNL crisis, right? So then what do they all do? They get the regular, they, the policymakers give them the ability to then go out and do stuff like make commercial real estate loans, right? Buy junk bonds, all these crazy things. So they want to make up for that lost profitability. So they go, they're, they're, it's the ricochet effect. They go out and buy all these crazy stuff put on their balance sheet. And then you have a second wave of failures that was even much, much larger than the mismatch failure. So the concern is that like, if you're, if you're a bank and you're listening to this, I presume your, your listeners are bankers. One of the things you learn from history of banking is that in times like this, it's better to, to do less than it is to do more. Much better to do less than it is to do more. There was a, there was a hearing at the House Financial Services Committee and I think it was 1980 or 1994 or something like that, where they brought in six or seven of the CEOs of savings and loans that performed really well through the 80s. So they th- went through this whole hearing. And um, at the end of it, it was basically like, well, what did you guys do that other people didn't do? And they said, we just kept doing what we were doing. And so that's really kind of the lesson in this situation. Become a disruptor in the emerging fintech space through NYU Stern's new Master of Science in Fintech program. This is a one-year part-time program divided into one online and six on-site modules that take place in New York and in other rotating global locations. The new program is designed for experienced working professionals who want to strengthen their fintech skills or transition to fintech leadership positions. The final application deadline for the inaugural Master of Science in Fintech program class of 2024, beginning May 2023, is April 15. Don't miss out. GMAT and GRE scores are generally not required. 
To learn more about the program, submit your resume for a candidacy review at stern.nyu.edu slash msft breakingbanks. Well, what are some of the other uh, causes? So, so, so let's keep going. Oh, I think sure. I think I, I I think this kind of builds on itself, right? So, then you get into the go go um, late eighties, early nineties, and merger mania, where um, what rules the day is uh, operating leverage. And so, how, we're all running the same business model. If I can run it a little bit more efficiently and cut the cost, then I can acquire the next one. So, where's it take us? We as we come out of that right that yeah. all dies down around we had another little blip in the early 90s right 91 or so right yeah okay so i sorry i forgot that the rest of that question so okay let's just talk we can <laughs> we can okay. talk about we can talk about the world of, so there's about 10 reasons that banks fail yeah okay and this is really interesting actually because there have been about seventeen thousand failures in the united states that, that I've, I've been able to aggregate since kind of the beginning okay mm-hmm. and there's probably 24, 25, if you, if you really had all the pure data. So you think 10 reasons they fail, so it's like 20,000 failures. That means that for every bank that fails today, there's at least 22,000 that failed for the same reason before in the past. And yet we don't learn from you know, the past, which is an interesting, and there's, there's, there's a longer discussion, but there's reasons for that. Um, but, so, but if you go through the whole universe of bank failures, what you'll find is that the majority of them, and or the plurality of them at least, are commercial real estate related. Commercial real estate, like it's it's a very sharp up and down curve. So you get a lot of those. I mean, this goes back, the very first failures in this country happened in 1809. They were in, uh, related to a project in Boston. A guy named Andrew Dexter decides, hey, it's the top of a cycle. What am I going to do? I'm going to build a building, the tallest building in Boston, right? This is like the story of all cycles, right? He goes, he gets control of five banks. They all lend him in this money. He builds the building up. The cycle turns down. He can't lease it up. They default on loans. Those five banks all go. This is it's just from the beginning of time. So commercial real estate is the main thing. Um, after that, you have you'll have like um, uh, uh, trading errors that will cause like for Franklin National. You probably remember Franklin National when it failed mm-hmm. in '74. I think it was. It had made a bunch of directional bets on uh, foreign exchange rates, so it failed. So you'll have directional bets on interest rates, like First Penzi did. Um, you'll have situations like, do you remember the Windstar cases at all? Mm, vaguely. The Windstar cases are fascinating because in the in that situation, you had this SNL crisis, you had all these savings and loans that were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And the big ones couldn't, the, the, the FSLIC could not come in and take them over without just going completely broke. So they said, listen, what we'll do for you. You all can merge together mm-hmm. and any type of goodwill that came about as a result of that merger you can count that as regulatory capital. Oh, so boy. they're doing that. So all these, all these. Because that's, that's super easy to liquidate when you need to. <laughs> super, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can sell that on the street any day, right? But then in 1989, they, the Congress passed a new piece of legislation that said that doesn't count. So all of those things, just, they just drop like that. Um, so you have the, that situation where kind of the, the government gets in. You have situations where, um, this is a really interesting one, okay? So in the lead up to the Civil War, when you had found it, you and I want to found it, but you, me, and Kia want to found a bank. So we have to raise $20 million to found that bank. Kia's got a million, you've got a million, and I've got like $5. So we got like $2 million between the three of us, okay? We need to raise $18 million more. How are we going to raise that? Well, we're going to borrow it. Who are we going to borrow it from? Oh, 
we're going to borrow from the bank that we're about to create. <laughs> we're going to bootstrap this baby up. I like we're that. Base- Isn't that that's great? A good, that's a good one. <laughs> that's good. No, I don't know. I'm going to... I'm in. Someone should bring that, that method back. I'm totally in on that. <laughs> totally in on that. That's <laughs> how it was, the free banking era, that's what they did. That's how all the banks were founded. And so you go and say like, well, so what, and what you do is you arbitrage the dividend on that stock against the interest payment that you're paying to the bank. And so what does that lead you to do? It leads you to chase for yield to jack up the yield that, the, you know, to jack up the dividend relative to the interest, your interest payment, right? So what do they do? Well, they go and they chase for yield. And what do you chase? What do you buy in the 1850s to chase for yield? What do you think you buy in the 1850s to chase for yield? Farmland? Uh, yeah, well, I was, I was going to guess. Do, either, do I buy either... stock in gun manufacturers? What is for sale on it? Do I buy covered gold, wagons? What? Gold or... Um, Mercantilism? Yeah, yeah. Go- government bonds. Human human bodies? You can buy humans in the... No, no. <laughs> sorry. That's sadly true. So sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, so, so, JP, you're right. So government bonds, but what kind of government bonds? State government bonds, but not just any state government bonds. Confederate state government bonds. Oh. That was fine and dandy until Fort Sumter. Literally like 95% of the banks in Illinois failed in, 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 in the immediate wake of Fort Sumter because then all those Southern bonds just tanked. So you have that situation. We have bets on government bonds that, that fail for different reasons. Um, I mean, you can go through, there, there's, a, there's a catalog of them, but that, that really covers the, the main ones. Um, and then you have, the, I guess the other, the last main category is you'll have a freeze, you'll have the lend to securitize model and then a freezing in the securities market. That's what brought down IndyMac. That's what brought down the countrywide. That's what brought down uh, for really is what that's what brought down WAMU as well. So those those are kind of the, the main categories. Yeah. So, you know, what's notably absent from that list is, um, you know, digital banking or, you know, being innovative or, you know, uh, non-banking. Uh, non-credit fee income, right? The, the, I just find it ironic that the banks who have been slow movers on innovating and adopting new things always do so under the guise of because we're conservative and you know we we don't we don't believe in taking risk, and yet the risk that brings down you know huge companies and sometimes huge swaths of the industry are really the basics of being a bank right managing the balance sheet managing the relationship between assets and liabilities and the pricing of each of those and the yield and duration um and at the end of the day um you you've got some fraud cases yeah some boom and bust cycles like you noted in commercial real estate but at, at the end of the day it's really about managing the balance sheet. And that's the part we're supposed to be good at as bankers. Um, so there's there's a little bit of an undercurrent now of kind of uh, blaming crypto. Uh, and and let, let's take a step back. And earlier in the week, you know, just two, three whole days ago, the big news was that Silvergate Bank was going to shut down much smaller. Silicon Valley Bank, $209 billion bank. Silvergate, about a $1.1 billion bank. But they went in hard as a specialist for being uh, bankers to those involved in in crypto uh, in in various ways and providing liquidity to that. So, um, Q, what do you know about the Silvergate situation? And, and what, if anything, does that have to do with Silicon Valley and some of the, the broader issues we've been talking about? Well, like you know, Silicon Valley, um, Silvergate picked 
um, a very specific and distinct customer line um, group to to service. And they they really structured their entire bank around that. And I think, you know, a year ago, you'd look at that and say, that's a, that's a pretty safe looking bank. Um, you know, you've got lots of deposits um, and you've got very little long-term um, assets. Um, so you, you've hopefully figured out your duration um, at mismatch or your duration matching. Um, but I think what we learned truly about the um, about Silvergate was that you know they had a very volatile deposit base. Um, their custom, you know, their, the niche industry um, crypto is very volatile, and that for reasons that had nothing to do with Silvergate's own safety and soundness, um, crypto had um, you know big concerns. Um, there was they had you know, Silvergate had overexposure to one entity that ended up filing for bankruptcy. And then we discover um, that Silvergate also has um, a concentration in their securities portfolio that is um, five to 10 years and 10 years or longer. Um, so I was, so you can talk about all of the, all of the risks they didn't take um, to keep their ver- balance sheet very liquid, but it turns out that they also have just too much duration risk. Um, and so something that I see as very common between um, Silicon Valley and Silvergate is that they have this monoline business where they have overly concentrated. And in banking, we normally see that on the asset side, but it was just so interesting to see what it looks like when you um, you know, focus on one industry um, or one set of customers and they all need their money at once. Um, and so we just had, we ended up having like, you know, another deposit run. I will also say that Silvergate's, um, Silvergate managed to buy themselves some time by taking out a federal home loan bank, uh, fu- you know, line of credit or funding line um, that was paid back um, after the end of the fourth quarter. And it looks like that kind of was, you know, maybe potentially kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. It seems like that was um, the reason why they had to file their non-timely um, 10, you know, 10Q disclosure or K disclosure. And then um, that seems to be what set off their final deposit run was the fact that they had lost that um, wholesale funding that was probably propping the bank up um, or helping assuage a lot of um, their borrowers that they could cash them out. And I do want to say that, I, you know, I give all the props to Silvergate that it seems like they made their many of their depositors whole in this um, before they decided to liquidate from, you know, just public reports. And that that can't be said of most crypto companies um, that when they have entered bankruptcy, um, it looks like Silvergate was able to facilitate the um, the full pay- payment of those accounts. And so um, I, you know, I think that that's just such an interesting thing about banks is, is that, um, you know, just trying to get people their money and, con- you know, have trust in the banking industry. Well, and they're shutting down voluntarily, right? Yeah, uh, it's a voluntarily, voluntary liquidation. Voluntary. <laughs> John's doing air quotes. So uh, quasi-voluntary. Well, I, we can tell, we know that the FDIC does not count it as a failure, given what uh, the language that appeared in the um, SVB um, press release. So for, you know, the count was, the, the sheet was clean for about two more days. And then we had our first failure. So there's liquidity and then there's liquidity right there there's real liquidity right now cash and you both have hit this a couple of different times from a couple of different angles but let's just be crystal clear about this uh, deposits are the lifeblood of banking it, it's really one of the core definitions of what is a bank right we were able to gather low or no cost 
uh, deposits. Um, and in order to have a banking license, that means we, we, we make some explicit and implicit promises that those will be available to the depositors when they want those money back. And of course, we operate on a fractional reserve system, and and so it can be fragile in in times like this. Um, but part of this risk comes from then when instead of holding that in short term, you want to make money on the difference. That's the other big part of the definition of being a bank is we gather the deposits, but then we lend it back out or buy securities with it, something to generate a yield higher than what we've paid out. And when we have to reach out into longer durations, uh, that means that money actually isn't so liquid, right? If I need to give it to you today, I don't have it. So yeah, it was so interesting to think about uh, Silvergate you know, again, Monday morning quarterbacking, but that if you have all of these deposits coming in and you actually have a pretty decent fee in income, the choice to like, where do you put those deposits and for how long? And, um, you know, how, you know, why, why 10 years, <laughs> why 10 years? Um, cause, uh, you know, I was remarking the treasury will sell you a one month bond. Um, and, um, and, and so the, and I think that that's really what we tried, what's Silicon Valley tried to do is really emphasize that they were going to get out of these longer term bonds and get really liquid, really, and get really short. And, and so I don't know, um, you know, a lot of banks with these, uh, unrealized losses, they, they just have to wait for those bonds to mature so they can reinvest it. They, because they really don't want to recognize the proceeds. But if you picked four years ago, a five-year bond instead of a one month bond or a one-year bond, um, that's just, that's a choice you're living with today. Yeah. So I guess the big question is how much of a canary in the coal mine is this, right? How, uh, and without naming any names or looking at, but just thinking about the industry and the way, right? These, these are, these are not unusual choices that a couple of rogue banks made, right? These are kind of the very difficult challenges that treasurers are making at every bank across this industry, right? So what do we think the fallout looks like? And by the time you listen to this, you'll find out if we're anywhere close to accurate. Let me let me answer a different question before I answer that one. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, JP. Um, there's this sense that like banks are non-innovative and like the banks that, are, that don't innovate, like they fall behind and they're 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 at more risk of failure. When you actually go through the data and you go through the history, what you find is it's the exact opposite. What you find is that not only is there not a first mover advantage, there's a first mover disadvantage, almost universally across the board. Um, I mean, I could go through stories of different banks at different time periods. The, the first bank that decided, oh, we're going to be open 24 hours a day. It wasn't around for very long. It was this innovative idea, right? Uh, the First Union, remember First Union's uh, future bank initiative, FBI, where they go in, they're going to put all this technology in their branches and then you don't have to, have to deal with their tellers. Mm -hmm. People hated mm -hmm. it. It mm -hmm. took a huge, took a huge hit. CEO had to leave. That was a bad, there was a, there was a bank in Ohio that when uh, ATMs first came out, it said, I'm going to, we're going, heavy. this is, this is the future. We're going in heavy on these. So they put these uh, throughout all their brands, all this, all this money putting that throughout their branches. But it was the first iteration of, of uh, ATMs. And the first iteration of ATMs used punch cards. Well, it wasn't like six months before the, the magnetic, magnetic strip came out. And so what's interesting is that like in banking, the, the job of a bank is to keep people's money safe. That's what the job, the job of a bank is not to innovate. The job of a bank is to keep people's money safe and to serve as a lubricant for, for credit 
in the economy in the United States. I mean, it's like, that's their job. Their job is not to be fancy. Their job is not to wear vests that say Patagonia and have some sort of logo on it. Like, that's not their job. And so, you know, when you hear these, you know, I, I talk to the really, the really good bankers. That's kind of the people that I, I deal with. And then I talk to some fintech people and you go around to these fintech people and they're like, oh, these bankers, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. They're so non-innovative and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because we'll tell you, you know, the average bank in the United States is 102 years old. The oldest bank in the United States was founded by Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> like they've seen quite a bit of change. And they say, well, tell me about you. Like tell, like, tell me about your company. You know, you guys must be like, have been around for a long time, right? Like, well, no, we've been around for 18 months. And they're like, well, did you make a profit? You know, well, no, we don't really make a profit. You know, like, they're like, well, what do you know about innovation? You don't know anything about innovation. They're just like tinkering around with Legos. They, they have no clue. Banks have made it through the cycles. You know what I mean? And so well, like, I think it's a narrative. But, that, but like, one of the big challenges, though, John, is how many of those do we need? How, okay, how many so, does the system need? Right. If you're all the same and you're just, you know, maintaining a, a bread and butter balance sheet, how many of those do we need as an economy? Okay. So oh, this is getting good. So this question right here, you're going to get some like this. Is, just listen, this is good, okay? Well, we said this wasn't a hot takes episode, but maybe we should have had some wings and hot I'm gonna sauce show you for this Hold one. On That's Jason Stitt. Oh, man, funny. John's getting up. This is an audio uh, medium, John. Yeah, uh, he's getting oh, up no, for a prop. Audio? Oh, never mind, never no, mind. No, that's all right. Go ahead. We'll, okay, let me show you I've this. got video on. Well, if <laughs> we may show this clip. This is the... Uh, John's showing a is, giant poster. He, he pulled up his white... He pulled up a corkboard. There's a lot of strings, red strings on it. I can see that. You guys see yes, John, we can see it. You're a little far from your mics now, though, your audience. Yeah, but that's okay. I, I can see it, okay. and I'll talk through it. So it's, it's a uh, giant poster-sized canvas John has created. He's also been dabbling in um, art. Yeah, graphic yeah. design and art. And it's a, uh, a, a, a chart, a line chart uh, of all of uh, the eras that, that he was kind of highlighting. So, yes. All right, John, <laughs> we okay. see it. What that chart shows, it's the it's the Number population of banks. of banks. It's the population of banks in the United States going all the way back to 1790. And what you see is that it looks like if you've been to Florence. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I missed. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more failures. banks. That was that's the big just the, that's number of banks. Sorry, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That's the population of banks in the United States. And so, it, if you go to like Florence, like to, just to paint the picture of what this chart looks like in people's heads, there's a the Duomo in Florence, that that big cathedral that looks overlooks Florence. It's got a big dome and then it's got a flat back and then like a little thing at the end that goes up a little bit and it comes down. So you, you have that on your what, Twitter, don't you? We'll, we'll share it. We'll, yeah, you, yeah, you, I have that you, on yeah. Twitter. All right, we'll share it. Okay, so like what you see, there's this huge, huge bump, okay? Huge bump. And you know what that bump is? It starts in the 1870s. This huge increase in number of banks and then they drop down in the Great Depression, in the 1920s, plateaus, and then there's a consolidation cycle starting in the, the mid-1980s. But that whole bump is the consequence of the birth of disposable income, okay? In the 1880s, the average person had $4 on deposit in an account. Now, there's been a lot of inflation, but it's still only $27 today, okay? There was no disposable income. With the birth of disposable income, all this cash flooded into the United States in particular. And so the banks were like, oh my God, like we gotta go arbitrage that. So all these banks, Founded them, so you know, got got formed. So it shoots way up. We have the Great Depression. They come down. Then you have this long period of time called the Great Moderation. Then it comes back up again after the energy crisis a little bit, and then dives back down after um, the changes were made to 
that allowed um, uh, mergers and acquisitions amongst banks, like interstate banking and, and branch banking. Right. But where we are still coming from is that like, we are still coming down from the boost in disposable income, from the birth of disposable income. Now, how far do we go, right? How far would we go back to like the, I think there were a couple, I mean, a thousand banks before it all started? Don't know. But what that would be a function of is, in my opinion, consolidation in agriculture. So you look at the, the map of the banks in the United States, where are they? They're in Iowa, they're in Illinois, uh, they're in Missouri, they're in Minnesota, like they're in the farm states. And why are they in the farm states? Well, you go out to a farm and you want to make a loan to a farmer, what do you have to know? Does the farmer drink and drive? Does the farmer work hard? Does the farmer take care of his equipment? Does, does he have good water rights? How long do the water rights last? Are there indentations on his property where you can't just take it on a per acre basis because the water will, will co- collect there and like lower the yield? Does he, he really to, have 500 heads? You know, or does he really he have 500 Moving around heads? the same 30, yeah. Does, does he have a kid that helps out and that's going to be good and that's going to take over for the farm? Like You have to know all of these really bespoke things. So as long as we have a lot of little farmers in this country, we're going to have a lot of little banks. Now, how many? We don't know, but there will be thousands of them. Uh, but then if you go, but if, if agriculture consolidates down on those little farms and they spread the risk there, that's when banking in the United States could go down to like, 15 banks, 20 banks, 30 banks. Well, um, but consolidation of both farming and banking has been undeniably happening, right? O- yes, over the, absolutely. the last several decades. I joined the industry in the late 1980s. We had over 13,000 banks. We have less than 5,000 today. Um, I've been kind of wondering what the catalyst is for the next big push for that. This might be it. Well, That's it. I mean, JP, we talked uh, a couple months ago about um, M&A and why there's so little M&A right now. And going back to, you know, again, this albatross of the bond book on banks is, is really making it difficult to get deals worked out. Um, your question about what banks should actually be doing right now today, I think, you know, drawing on some of John's previous remarks, um, do less. It sounds like doing less is probably a good um, idea right now, hunkering down, I think, um, you know, staying as liquid as possible. Jani um, published a report today, and um, I've written about it a little bit. Um, you know, capital is useful. Um, certainly, if you think you might need it in three months, maybe raise it now. Um, <laughs> don't wait till you need it. Um, and then, you know, when, you know, there's a couple of capital ratios that are used currently, and regulators tend to use a ratio that doesn't include um, unrealized losses in the ratio. But there is um, a ratio called tangible common equity that is calculable. It's, it's a common ratio. It's just not the one that regulators seem to use. Um, and that one does actually... But it's include... the one investors tend to use. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's it exists. Um, it's one you need to know. And, and that's the one that includes um, unrealized gains and losses. And so there are, um, I believe now, more than 500 banks in the industry that have a a tangible common equity ratio that is below 5%, which um, for many banks could put them in the adequately capitalized um, or less, less than well capitalized category. Those banks will probably need to have conversations. Not, it's not dire. But they are in a position where they will have to probably like maybe game out some potential choices and maybe do some liquidity or interest rate stress testing. I think one thing that we know is that the Federal Reserve is not taking their foot off the gas um, for interest rate increases. And so 
any losses in your bond portfolio, they might increase and you, and that probably should be modeled. It, it seems now wildly optimistic to think that there will be an interest rate decrease, um, in 2023. Um, maybe, maybe it'll just stop rising, but I don't think it's going down. Um, and so those banks, um, that are in that position where they're, you know, they have low tangible common equity, but right now their regulators aren't concerned. Now's the time to probably shore up liquidity and then, uh, um, stop taking duration risk, or maybe start buying, start buying some of those, uh, 12, 12 month or uh, 12, year, 12 month bonds that are paying 5% to make up for some of these, um, to hide some of these losses. So I, I think that that's probably what, um, banks should have conversations around and then, you know, kind of, eye on you know, long-term, right? Like this is a long-term game, right? Like maybe focus le- a little bit less on the idea of innovation at the moment and focus more on those fundamentals that fail banks. Well, I, you know, in times of crisis um, are often times of great opportunity. And so I know that there are some banks already reaching out publicly and personally to uh, some of the VCs and the tech funds and the entrepreneurs and saying, hey, you know, move your banking here from, you know, one of those other institutions that's maybe not doing so well. I think there is opportunity there. I also think the big opportunity and one we've been focused on for quite a while now is helping um, banks to understand what kinds of non-rate features and benefits and products can you add to really help make, um, first of all, make your customers' lives better, but secondly, create sticky relationships. Uh, How do you get out of the rat race of, of just, you know, the spreadsheet of of yields and net interest margin. And it's what other kinds of things can you offer um, to your customers that are relevant to them that allows you to play to the strengths of being a bank and which is about having a, a strong balance sheet and the liquidity. So I think there's going to be lots of opportunities there, both for banks and for fintechs. Yeah, I think there's a bigger conversation that um, probably needs to be had around how do we know um, how quote unquote sticky these deposits are. Rate is probably not um, as useful of an indicator um, in this current environment. Maybe it is, but you know, at these two banks, at least they had very, very low cost deposits and they were still um, apparently a little bit more volatile and risky. And there needed to probably be some more diversification in the deposit base earlier. Um, And so I think I think as technology is bringing in different types of deposits into banks, um, as banks try to service different types of customers in different ways, they probably need to, um, you know, uh, game out um, the situations under which those deposits will leave, how they'll leave, how fast they leave. Um, I, you know, I think that as more um, faster payments, you know, so FedNow and, you know, the RTP and Zelle and all these different ways that money can leave banks, not just through checks, not just through loan payments. Um, banks probably need to incorporate maybe like a faster rate of their um, deposit flight than they have in the past. And then also um, t- figuring out how they will replace those funds. The sh- you know, I've been, I've been covering, um, some of the changes that the Fed has made in their deposit or in their discount window to make it more competitive to the FHLB um, to kind of reduce some of the stigma around borrowing from that window. Um, and maybe that's something banks need to be exploring too, because I think there might be some changes uh, coming to the FHLB, um, given that they are currently in um, some listening sessions around their 90th anniversary. 
You bring up some good points about speed. It really does cut both ways. And, you know, this isn't, it's a wonderful life with, uh, you know, people clamoring around a teller window, you know, looking for cash. Uh, The money does move in fast and moves out fast as we're seeing. All right, John, I'll give you the last word here. Any uh, uh, wrap up thoughts before we uh, close out today? Yeah, two thoughts. Um, So I've been texting back and forth with a bunch of my banker friends and um, rude. Did well, they lose money? Did, did um, they lose access to all their money? No, 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 no. These are people who run banks. Uh, I was going to say, uh, it must be nice yeah. to have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in a bank account. Yeah, yeah. These are know? people who run banks, <laughs> and uh, uh, so in times like this, the the issue in times like this is a loss of confidence. the The whole banking industry is found is predicated on this this confidence in our system and in our institutions, and. There's when things go crazy, people lose that confidence and like wacky things start happening. And like right now, I mean, like these guys are seeing like uh, these guys are seeing things that they've never seen before. And they, these guys have all ran banks to the financial crisis. So it's interesting, but it's important to appreciate that we have a very, very stable banking industry structure in the United States. The FDIC, the federal government backs it up. We have a just just distribution of all these banks across the country, little banks, big banks. I mean, it creates a very, very like stable system. And so, like, there's going to be news probably looks like coming out like relatively soon and throughout the day that like it's it's pretty. I mean, like I'm getting these texts from these guys. These guys have been running banks for like decades, and they're like, "This is crazy." Um, but the thing about it is that like, if your money's in a bank, just chill out. Like, you're probably going to be insured. Um, you just don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to add to the panic. You want to. You want to kind of kind of dissipate it if you can. So that's that's what I would say. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, opposite of irrational exuberance, right? It's uh, you know irrational despair uh, right now, which will even out over time. But well, thank you both for being with us today, especially on somewhat short notice. I appreciate both of your insights and expertise. Yeah, and I'm I'm you know eternally grateful to the FDIC who put out that press release um, before Just recording. Yeah, it's almost like they knew, but also. Um, you know, if you've ever worked in um, bank reporting, you know that uh, every single newsroom tonight was gearing up for a 7 p.m. press release and um, and, a, and a pizza party probably uh, because it was about to be a late night and that shifted at, um, you know, 10.45 this morning um, Central Time. So, you know, everyone enjoy their Fridays, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I today I discovered that there is a... Uh, Twitter account called uh, I think it's Bank Failure Fridays or something like that, uh, and it's it's been pretty quiet. But Bank Fail Friday been so quiet for for thirty two months. It's been quite quiet, and uh, guess what? Uh, yeah. They've got news again. Hey JP, real quick, let me put a plug in for I'm rolling out a newsletter um, next week, and it's going to be like predicated upon fifteen months worth of research at which I've written nothing about. This is brand new stuff, fresh stuff. It's excellent. It'll be excellent. Um, Check it out at Maxfield on Banks. Uh, check out my Twitter handle, Maxfield on Banks. I'll, I'll talk about it there. All right. We'll put a link in the show. If and, we're, and, if we're prep, promoting stuff, Bank Director's second quarter issue is about to come up where we also <laughs> talk about take the long game on deposit. So it sounds like we'll do that. All right. And do. Kia, then you have to talk about your, <laughs> your uh, podcast with Always. Alex. Yeah. <laughs> what about your, your podcast with Alex? Oh, well, I think, I mean, 
you know, Alex and I record a podcast uh, once a month about um, fintech and bank news. We recorded the podcast episode that comes out last week, um, several weeks ago. So there will be, so everything was fine and a little bit more boring in banks, but um, certainly um, check that out. That's fintech takes. Um, Bank director produces a podcast, the slant, we produce a newsletter. And then of course our um, quarterly magazine is coming out um, pretty soon next month. So in addition to breaking banks, uh, definitely follow Key Hazlitt, John Maxwell. Thanks to you both. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, JP. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.